1: Welcome to the mini break, your date. Podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world today is Wednesday, November 15th. As promised on today's show, we're going back in time to break down the final event of the 2023 WTA season. The WTA Tour Finals certainly produced some things. Yes, there was intrigue on the court, there was certainly a lot of intrigue surrounding the event as well. What went wrong? Write what? didn't a lot to discuss from an event that, yes, is a few weeks in the rearview mirror, but it's a celebration of all things accomplished in 2023. It's eight of the best players in the world, all competing in a round robin tournament format. It's everything we love here at Cracked Racket. So, of course, we are going to go back in time on today's show to break down that event. And as promised, joining me on the podcast to discuss it all is one of our Maybe the returning champion of returning champions of our 2023 season certainly would qualify for a mini break tour finals edition. Of course, you all know him as an editorial producer for all things Tennis Channel and Tennis.com. Essentially a co-host of this mini break podcast at this point. One of our dearest friends joining us again. It's David Kane, DK, welcome back to the show. You ready to go back in time with me today?
0: I'm sorry. I thought I was here for the Racket Magazine regroup strategy meeting. Is that, am I in the wrong room? Do I need to go? Is that outside? Is that the USDA building? Or, are where do I go are we that?
1: allowed to make jokes about it without like making the entire Racket universe angry? Because I have I mean, some.
0: A lot of the tertiary people have commented on it and okay. have retweeted the article. Uh, including uh, Defector's own uh, Geary Nathan, of whom I am a, hu- a big fan. And he noted he, his weekly newsletter was put on pause, confirming that detail in the article. And both of the subjects were quoted in the story, which, as if, for those who do not know, there has been quite a bit of uh, tension and um, financial strum happening within the confines of everyone's favorite artistic uh, fashion, lifestyle, tennis brand, otherwise known as Racket Magazine, which was has been running for 8 years and is ostensibly suspended indefinitely while they sort out some some internal and external issues but uh, as i said both both sources were quoted so i feel like it's something it's not like it's a report you know it was well quite well researched and well uh well journalismed uh, is the technical term i believe so I, I believe we're free to make that joke i don't know if everyone will like it but it was certainly uh Certainly, top of mind for most people within the tennis world over the last couple of days. Uh, in in this post-debutate finals world, where we're kind of, we we went from one mess to another. Uh, to well, put it mildly.
1: let's inside baseball it then. I'm glad you brought this up because I have. In my drafts right now on X, Twitter, whatever we're calling it, and I'll show it to you here on the Zoom, love the people at Racket, gutted to see this, still an objectively fascinating article by Defector, which, as you mentioned, gave an inside scoop in the breakdown for all things Racket Magazine, which it just sounds like financially will not be able to continue in its current iteration. And again, it's a little inside baseball-y, but... I agree, like, this is, in my opinion, you talk about tennis journalism, this might be the finest piece of tennis journalism we have had in the 2023 season, and the state of tennis journalism, the objectives of tennis journalism, what it ideally as a subject and as a part of it, I guess it's a little weird to talk about this, but, you know, what the aspirations of all of us should be in trying to cover and portray, you know, again, work that subject through, that's a separate discussion, but there aren't a lot of entities, In this game. Obviously, what you guys are doing, tennis.com and tennis channel, that's the mothership in terms of coverage, particularly here in North America. Now, you know, there are European entities I'm less familiar with. Obviously, Lake Keep is one of the more popular ones. You have what Tennis Majors is trying to do as well. But Racket Magazine was one of those few entities that I think had mainstream recognition amongst tennis fans. And, you know, again, you would, I don't want to say see editions of Racket Magazine popping up at every event you were at in everyone's hands, but I think most tennis fans are aware of the presence of Racket Magazine. Most of us, certainly people listening to this podcast, have read an article or two or seen one of their exceptional spreads, whether it be via their photos, whether it be, again, some of the artwork they've produced Racket Magazine is a serious entity, and it is now just evaporated. And again, read the defector piece. I apologize for blanking on the author's name, but to read what went wrong. I mean, scathing. That's the word that will come to mind. And read the article. You're right. It's public information now. If Said story, and they said we didn't see the financials are true, but to lose $200,000 twice in three months, let me just say as someone at Crack Rackets who's trying to establish an entity in tennis media. Not the kind of money we're making.
0: That is devastating. (laughs) That's
1: what I'm saying. Like, that's a kiss of death. And I mean, again, where do those writers, those people, because Racket Magazine did fulfill a particular – I don't want to say niche because I think that's too cliche of a term, but it filled a particular lane in tennis journalism and to see that evaporate. I'm not saying you guys at tennis.com and us at crack rackets and others can't fill the void, but certainly it's a void, DK. Like this, this did send some shockwaves amongst people like us. Like I've texted about it with everyone.
0: I mean, first of all, I'll just add for those of you who can't see Alex right now with his uh, tennis racket hat and very (laughs) chic. Uh, neon blue sunglasses. He very much looks like what I would imagine the target demographic of a Racket magazine reader to look like. So I Yellowstone hoodie? Like this is a, like a meta-conversation we're having They're right true. now. And to your point, I think when we talk about niche, I think what Racket did so successfully was fill a void that is a problem, I would say, in, with journalism in general, which is that we are so to-the-minute, fast-paced, 24-hour newsroom that there isn't mm-hmm. As many places where one can sit back and meditate on a Naomi Osaka or an Andrea Petkovic, or just be home to some of the most talented writers that we have in tennis because everything is so requires such a fast turnaround. You know, it's I just last year I did a feature story on Leila Fernandez for Tennis Magazine and I wrote, I interviewed her in March. I wrote the story in June and it was published in August and it was a very surreal experience because I'm so used to speaking to a player on one day, writing it up the same day, and having it published by – if it's not published within 24 hours, it feels like, whoa, I've really been sitting on this piece for a while. I can't wait for it to roll out. I mean, it's just a totally different um, process. And it's a process of which I'm greatly envious of because there are so many subjects and players and phenomenons in tennis and, and historical uh, things that one would like to look back on and certainly like to read about that we don't have that opportunity to. So it, in that sense, it's a shame if it's gone.
1: And just to interject, because I do want to let you continue – for instance, three months with Ben Shelton from November or eight, six weeks, end of November to the start of his season. What does this look? I, mean, I don't know, like? know if what we have
0: time for your fan fiction right now. No. <laughs> but I'm You're saying, kidding. I'm, kidding, I'm
1: kidding. I'm saying a piece like that best exists right now in a tennis magazine, in a racket magazine. And a, to your point, like responding to the latest tweet, responding to the latest piece of news, a coaching breakup or a quote about a match that, by the way, is only relevant till two days from now when that player plays his next match or she plays her next match. You're absolutely right. That's not the purpose of Racket Magazine. They are not doing beat coverage. They are trying to, to your point, examine some of the larger topics at hand and, I mean, again, I'll tell you what, if you have $400,000 to blow, there is some sort of budget there. And I just you wonder if that budgeting for those sort of stories exists elsewhere. Certainly, you lo- we would love to make that happen here at Cracked Rackets. You're on hopefully the quest of doing so. I would love to see all the financials of Racket Magazine. Who wouldn't an open monetize?
0: call for investors right now? Yeah. No, I mean, but it does <laughs> feel like a, a, a fiscally like... focused uh, a, pair, a yeah. pair of a pair of guys right here.
1: And I want to give you the final word on this topic, but right like. There'll be some sharks in the water. It's an interesting commodity. I'm fascinating what their subscriber list was. I'm fascinating what the magazine on its own that margin, are they losing money per publishing of the edition? Are they making enough money to where actually if it was just the magazine itself, it could be self-sustaining. Like it it it's fascinating to our ecosystem. Yeah, I said inside baseball to start. You brought it up, so final word goes to you.
0: I did. Um yeah, it's it is there are a lot of questions. I feel like that are that are begged from the article because I, it did seem like they weren't necessarily making a ton of money just on the sales of the magazine. And there are obviously advertisements and investors and sponsors. You know whether it was sponsors for these these parties that were being held and hosted. Um, so it's it it's quite. I mean, I think it's one of those things where I mean me, I maybe I'm just naive when you see something happen and it happens multiple times a year and there's always something happening with with their name on it. You think, well, clearly they have the funds, the means to do it, because if they didn't, it wouldn't be happening. So to find out that there were some things happening that would maybe contradict it or maybe not make it a sustainable business model is was shocking to say the least. I, I think uh yeah, I, I I would be surprised to see if it's gone forever. I would be, I would, I would think that there's a lot of Creativity and brain power amongst the people within that circle to, you know, the, for there to be quite a comeback in the works. It just seems like we're at a an interesting impasse and something that was uh, quite shocking to come out this of uh, this week of all weeks.
1: Read the defector piece. Some of the stories, some of the quotes are scathing. They are just it. It's worth the read, and you're going to say, "Oh, this is longer than I thought," and then you're going to say, "Wow, I can't stop reading this because every story just." next story builds on this thing and it's just it's a fascinating piece of tennis journalism so again i think one of the best we got in 2023 and yes it's a little inside baseball but be sure to check it out shout out to that writer at defector all right and we'll Good be saying no more back. about
0: this at this time no
1: it's, <laughs> it's one of the biggest stories i would say in tennis again it's one of those things the mini break is kind of built to respond to and I bigger than to-
0: one of my pota features. <laughs>
1: I said one of the best pieces. Oh, I okay, the okay, best. okay. I said one of. Let the record they gotta show prize, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> They got to reopen
0: that Itwa prize. They got to reopen that jury pool for this for this article.
1: Itwa prize. I didn't know that's how you go about saying the acronym out the- loud. The Tom
0: Perotta that. prize. Um, yes, forgive me. Yes, no, of
1: course. That's, again, all right. Let's get into no, the I'm WTA bitter. Tour Finals because there are a lot of different storylines to discuss. And for what it's worth, why did we record this podcast on Wednesday, A, because that's when DK's schedule allowed it, but B gave me time to go back and watch all the group play matches, semi-finals, finals. I have watched everything. We're not going to break down every match. That's not how I want to approach this exercise. (laughs) What I want to do, you hear DK cheering in the background, is go through the eight players, and yes, with the guise of how they performed at the WTA Tour Finals, certainly helping shape our views, I want to talk about each of these players' seasons. I want to give them a grade. You look at these top eight who competed at this final field. Yes, we ended up missing Karolina Mukhova. Maria Sokri ends up taking her place. What a turn of events for Sokri, the final six weeks of the season. I want to give them a grade. We'll go with the letter grade. You can go pluses. You can go minus. Basic scale. Now, just a reminder, these WTA Tour Finals events, how they work. Again, you go through the entire season accumulating points. Slams offer more points than 1,000s, 1,000s more than 500s, 500s, 250s, etc You, you have to serve the, the ball
0: into the box. It's yeah, exactly. got to make the line. You know. Well, you Tennis. know, some
1: listeners, I assume you know, but just in case you'd forgotten, top eight who accumulate the most points throughout the course of the year, they qualify for this event. There's a nice pool of bonus money for all of these players as well. They're split into groups of four. Top two in each group advance after round-robin play against your three other players in your group. One plays two in each group in the semifinals. Then you have the finals ultimately play out how it worked. Iga Svjantek, Coco Gauff advancing out of their group. You also had Jessica Pagula and Arena Sabalenka advancing out of theirs. Svjantek, Pagula, the ones who go undefeated in group play. Svjantek ultimately defeating Sabalenka in straight sets in the semifinals. Pagula doing the same to Coco Gauff. And in the end... I mean, Iga Świątek was dominant in the final, knocking out Jessica Pagula in straight sets with her victory, not only over Seb Link in the semifinals, but in winning the tour finals for the first time, Iga secures world number one. That's your synopsis, how these players got there, what actually unfolded. Now let's talk about these players individually. And again, I want to go one by one. Let's give grades to how they performed here in 2023 with everything in the books. Let's start with the world number one, Iga Swiatek, who had a very different world number one ending season than she did in 2022. Yes, there was still so much success for Ega along the way. She had the most wins of any player in the 2023 season. She had the most top 10 wins of any player in the t- 2023 season. She had the most top 20 wins of any player in the 2023 season. She's the only player who ends top 10 in both hold and break percentage in 2023. DK, 68-12 and 12 overall, according to the Tennis Abstract. Overall, look at things. Obviously, in terms of titles, she ended up winning this season. She wins in Doha, studio. Guard, Roland Garros, Warsaw, Beijing, and now the tour finals. So just rack up another six for her overall. Eight finals on the year. Again, she's the world number one. She was pushed. She lost that world number one ranking. Was fascinating to see the way she went after it at the end of the season. And you could see the emotion, not just in her beating Arena Sabalenka in the semifinals, but you could see that emotion after winning the final, what it meant for her to secure world number one. Again, Iga Sviantek, by every metric, had another fantastic season wins another slam for what it's worth as well to get to number four what do you rank the season where is it on the dk scale
0: imagine after all that i was like mm, c plus <laughs> 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 listen i think this is a great problem to have uh if you're shantek or any player who's had a phenomenal season by the way that she did in 2022 is that until you top that you will kind of always be compared to that peak season even if you Do 99% of that. They'll say, well, you know, in 2022, it was still so much more dominant. She was effectively wall to wall number one. She won two slams, you know. But at the same time, you know, to look at what she was able to accomplish this season and how she ended 2023, it's as close to an A plus as one could get. And I think in a vacuum, this was an A plus season relative to other seasons she's had in her career. It's probably an A because if 2022 is an A plus, then you know if 2023 is an a plus then 2022 would have to be an a plus plus you know for grading on you know in in totality but i think the question was how ego would replicate or follow up the way that she played in 2022 and i think the way that she finished it and certainly the way that she conducted herself throughout the year proves that she is on co- this is what one would consider i guess a momentum keeping year you know she didn't fall off the re- fall off the wagon she didn't ha- Lose ground that she's going to have to make up next year. She kept the pace. She won another slam. I think, and when I say keeping the pace, I think this is a player who is on track to winning double digit grand slams. And in order to, to do that by a certain time, you have to win one or two slams a year to, to get there in any kind of speed. And I think she's well on her way to doing that. And then, and, and just to take the WTA finals, you know, in totality, I feel like we're the, the way that it shook out in the end kind of didn't surprise me because the final was contested by. I guess we could say the two adults in the room, (laughs) you know, I think with all of the uh, drama and tension and complaining from most of the other players, it kind of doesn't surprise me that the two most, you know, emotionally mature grounded players, you know, put their heads down, made their way into the final and then Iga managed to, I mean, for, for Iga's biggest drama to be that she didn't want to wear a white dress You know, I mean, this is someone who's not a stranger to airing grievances and complaining, but I think she was so singularly focused on finishing the year number one. And to see someone respond to having a goal like that by playing so phenomenally well is, again, someone who is in it for the long haul. So, all of which to say, an A season for her. And I think she's set herself up in very good stead for another peak. You know, I think that's just where maybe if if this is her dip, then I shudder to think, you know, for the rest of the field.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's pretty straightforward from a metric standpoint as well. Again, last year 67 and 9, this year 68 and 11, excuse me, not 12. So, another win, two more losses, very similar last year. She made 12 semifinals, this year she made 13. Last year she made nine finals, this year she made eight. You know, last year eight titles to six, 21 and 2 against the top 20 last year, 22 and 7. This year, again, leads the season, both seasons in top 20 wins. Last year, she went 15-2 and two against the top 10. This year, slightly more human, 13-6. and six. Again, still best record, most wins against top 10 opponents of any uh, WTA player this season. The hardest thing to do in this sport is to back up being world number one. And this year, she had serious challengers. I do think you can say... There were and we'll we'll flush out the year-end awards on a different show, DK. I promise. But you could say there were times this year when Arena Sabalenka was better than Iga Swiatek. Probably through the first full third of the season, Sabalenka was straight up better. And,
0: and there was a time when Rabakino was number two. I mean, I think there there was a time when Krachkova was number three. I mean, there was a, there was a point in the year where Swiatek was the fourth best player on tour, and we don't even remember that based on the way that Iga has conducted herself both at the French Open throughout the year and particularly in the last four weeks.
1: Yeah, and I would never have put her at number four just on principle because I would have always picked Ego over Krejcikova straight up. But I see the point that you are making. and
0: I'll, I'll clarify there was an argument to be made. And it was yeah. an argument that was being made in the Miami Open press room. This is not yeah. something I pulled out of my butt. This is no, something that people were very, talking about.
1: Very fair. And then she goes and reminds everyone at Roland Garros. And then again, it was a little bit of a struggle. You know, again, decent fine passing grade at wimbledon you know decent i would say at the us open this year passing grade i probably as well just ostapenko kind of ostapenko did up um to end the season the way she did winning beijing beating coco as decisively as she did and you know again to go to this tour finals and beat pagula beat fiontec beat coco again the the termination you you described as well. She was so singularly focused at this event and through all of the muck because there were times when the court, the bounces were just weird and the wind was swirling in ways where it was damn near impossible for just about anyone to hit through this court. Not Iga She reminded everyone she is the most complete player we have in women's tennis right now. The ability to, again, absorb the pace of Arena Sabalenka. And then any moment Sabalenka left something short, she unleashed, she attacked, she was excellent. And again, redirecting that pace, showed off her strength, showed off her movement. And then, you know, again, 1-0 and against Pagula in the final. She was dominant. She was seeing the return of serve like a beach ball and just slapping things down the line. It was so fascinating. Everyone was struggling so much with the wind. Except for Iga, because if she got to hit her backhand against the wind, perfect. She can extend through it that much more. If she has the wind behind her back, particularly with her forehand going cross, that ball is just going to get on your shoulder so quickly, and she's so good at controlling all of the little details, comfortable moving forward, playing the swinging volley, not letting the elements grab hold of the ball. She just showed off everything at the Tour Finals. And again, in a year where there were questions, looks like there were legitimately times Sabalenka was better. And I do think coming out of this year, we'll talk about Sabalenka in a second, one of the biggest takeaways is someone proved that their best can be as good as Iga's. But I still think that's the standard coming out of this year is it has to be as good as Iga because she's the one everyone is still chasing. And to do that for a second consecutive season where, again, she turned 22 years old in May. I can't give it an A plus because it's only one slam. And here's why I say that Iga fans don't get mad. But, you know, my standards for Iga, she's not eliminated from the goat race for me. And in a year where it felt like she probably could have stolen a second slam, maybe not Australia, but New York was there for the taking. A solid A 95. No doubt about it. You passed, and you passed with exceptional colors. 95 on the mark, DK. Final word. I mean, goes you, to you. you think of
0: how Wimbledon panned out, and you think that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> sure. Uh, Fidelina von of a, a, the way she played in the final. I mean, sure. it could have been that would have really been a huge opportunity for her. But again, let's just clarify. We talked about the goat debate. We talked about double digit slams. Yeah. This was a phenomenal year for Svantec, who I think, to your point, we learned that yes, it takes a phenomenal effort to beat her. Not necessarily that she's beatable, which is something that one typically learns from a player post-peak year. Oh, they're beatable and this is how you beat them or something. Like this was more, no, it takes this, a superhuman level of power, determination, consistency to knock her off for perch. I mean, the one bad loss was to Kudamatova in Tokyo and she got so mad that she didn't win another match for the rest of the season. So, I mean, I think that's all you have to say about that. And again, just the fact that she is so much more emotionally mature and so much more focused and plays that much better under pressure is laudable commendable and something that's going to continue to serve her well over the next several years yeah
1: it was the first time we saw her not knock down but pushed to the side and she said no 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 challenged yeah i'm the year-end number one and again she ends it once again at that number one spot she gets nay from both me and dk all right let's move on to player number two she ends the year as the world number two And in my opinion, she came closer than anyone to actually knocking off Sviantec, even if the scoreline was an ultimately lopsided 6-3-6-2. That, of course, is Arena Sabalenka, who ends her season 55-14, six finals, three titles. Most notably, of course, gets her first slam title of her career in Australia. She also ends the year as one of just seven players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. She's the number two server behind Caroline Garcia, one of just three players over that elusive 80% hold mark. That's the elite of the elite. That was actually the original foundation for Serena Williams Power Tennis Country club many moons ago, but look, it was the season that was promised, it felt like, for so long, from everything we'd seen from Arena Sabalenka, who had been knocking on the doors for two and a half years. She wins Adelaide. She wins Australia. Again, pretty much defends everything. Sanze, weird Kerstea loss, where Kirsteia was just exceptional in Miami, and then she follows it up with the remarkable clay court season. She goes out there and beats Iga in Madrid. And look, again, there is a note, a footnote that has to be included in this Sabalenka season. There was a real world where she could have won three majors this year. Maybe not four, because I got to see someone beat Iga at Roland Garros before I can even entertain the thought. But obviously, the U.S. Open loss to Coco Gauff wins that first set 6-2. The Wimbledon loss to Anshjabur, wins that first set 7-6, felt like she had a million opportunities, even Roland Garros, again, 7-5 in the third to Mukhova, felt like she should have been in that final, and we should have gotten the Sviantek-Sabalenka final we were all hoping for. That said, title, semi, semi, final, and her three losses were all in three sets, DK, possible she also won the freaking slam title that she was looking for she got to world number one it's an a but it's the first disappointing a i'll ever hand out and this could have been an a plus
0: it's really the weirdest season to judge and i want to also introduce the idea that i tend to grade on a reality show curve which is that when (laughs) you as a contestant exceed expectations like when you defy your your narrative and your story arc you tend to get extra points it's why like the less funny drag queen on RuPaul's Drag Race gets in the top three for snatch game if she ends up being oh you were so much funnier than I thought you would be like it's even if you're maybe not the third funniest person in the group because you defied expectations you make a top three so, so that's part of why I feel tempted to give Sabalenka an A plus first to just piss people off but also because I feel like one would have never expected. This level of consistency, I mean, this is like mid-90s level, like Conchita Martinez level consistency, mm-hmm. consistency to make that many slam semifinals, finals, winning a title, you know, uh, being world number one. And yet, you know, when you look at the season, there were so many just horrifically disappointing losses that it's hard to juggle the two yes she was a 5-2 on mukova was up match point on her at the semifinals of Roland garros she was uh, up a set and a break on jabor she was up a set and coco was not playing well at the beginning of that second set of the us open final. you think surely she should have figured out a way to win that one just really felt went off the boil got distracted by the crowd and then at the, the wta finals gets distracted by the myriad conditions that were um um, distracting everybody, but she seemed to, I think, really take it to heart, got swept up in a lot of the PTPA, WTA um, controversies that were um, plaguing that. Which we'll that, talk that. about
1: a little bit yeah, later. And
0: so, and I feel like she kind of, it'll she really allowed it to distract her for that middle part of the round robin play. I feel like by the time she kind of got back into gear, it was like too late. You know, she was struggling against Rybakina, loses to Shvantech in the semis. And that ends up, you know, deciding world number one. You would, on one hand, you would have liked to have seen a fairer fight. But on the other hand, you know, a test of, of, the, of one's true mettle and determination. And Iga passes that test with flying colors. So you still learn, one still learned something from that week in Cancun. So yeah, I think you'd kind of have to give her, you'd have to round it down to an A just because of the the way that she lost a lot of these matches were whew, i mean she really could have been in more slam finals could have won more slam titles and would have been world number 1 with a bullet and it wouldn't even have come down to the wk finals the fact that it did was a testament to some of those defeats that she endured but overall i mean again we could have never expected this high bar from someone who's been famed and infamous for her inconsistency i mean the fact that she did what she did at all four slams, beats Iga on clay. Yes, Madrid, but on clay. Um, wins, I still think, probably one of the best matches of the year, the Australian Open final against Rybakian. It's hard to reconcile the woman who was so strong and mentally tough and served out that match in January in what I would argue was tougher, more pressure-filled situation to some of the losses that she took later in the year against players who were probably not playing as well as Javour or a Mukhova or even Okoko. We're not playing as well as Rybakian in the final of the Australian Open. So it's, it's weird to... To line those two up, but all of, all that said, another A for me.
1: The biggest thing you mentioned that inconsistency is how she cleaned it up this year. And for what it's worth, where I'll disagree with you to a hair is we actually had seen that consistency in the past. Twenty twenty, she goes twenty five and seven against opponents ranked outside <sighs> the top twenty. Just let me let me get there. Twenty five and seven against opponents outside the top twenty in twenty twenty. Thirty five and nine against opponents outside the top twenty in twenty twenty one. Last year got weird. She went twenty six and fourteen against opponents ranked outside the top twenty.
0: We didn't she, even mention the fact that she couldn't serve from yeah. large stretches of twenty twenty two. This is the same woman who's, who's now wh- was world number one and a Grand Slam champion.
1: Cleaned all of that up this year. This year against opponents ranked twenty one or higher, thirty eight and four. She dominated them. And who are the four losses? By the way, Muhova at Roland Garros finishes the year top ten. Krejcikova Dubai. DK mentioned earlier, she was one of the five best players in the world at that time. The Kerstea loss in Miami, which we're just not going to talk about. And the Rome loss to Kennan, which we're definitely not going to talk about. But
0: again, like days after the Madrid
1: win. Yeah, exactly. And it's two blips. Two blips in what is otherwise again a pretty clean sheet. Now, again, her 17 and 10 record against top 20 opponents. It's the second most top 20 wins, Trails only Iga Schviantek. She goes eight and seven against the top ten this year. It's the fourth most win, Trails Shviantek, Pagula Goth. Again, watching her though play that final, what was so remarkable is how well Iga had to play and it was still a competitive match like sabalenka has just she has the game that ability to swing through you she also i will continue to say the most underrated part for someone as powerful as she is the speed of her first step and just her movement in and out of corners in general her ability to participate to move as well as she does with the power she possesses again that ability to overwhelm you to just pull the trigger at any moment when her feet are set. She puts so much pressure on you and it took such a disciplined ega. That's what was so great about this rivalry moving forward, is it feels like it's going to take the best out of one of them on a given day for that player to win the match. And to prove that, which was the question, can anyone's best even push egas this year? That's why it has to be an A. It's why you would like it to be an A-plus in all other circumstances. But again, she really could have won four majors this year. Like, it was in the cards. And so we're going to go A, but that's also – there's still upside. You're like, hey, she could win even more majors next season.
0: Yeah, and I would I would say she kind of has to you know, in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, still given the way that the field is shaped, that's still – I mean, there were wide-open opportunities for her to win, as, any, as there was for Iga in some respects, but I think even more so for Sabalenka because she was just so close – in all four majors to win any combination of them. And the fact that it didn't happen, one would hope that she's able to fix whatever mental block was really troubling her in semifinals and a little bit in finals, but mostly in those semis, which is really interesting. To see. Even, even at the U.S. Open against Maddie Keyes going down, a, you know, 6-0, 5-3. I mean, granted, Keys played phenomenally, but you don't expect that kind of level of demolition from someone as aggressive as the Sabalenka. So you you hope that this is a... a well spent off season in which she's able to completely mentally recuperate and and now comes the time where she she's going to be the position that Iga was in in 2020 in this season having to defend what was a breakout year how do you defend that and i i suspect probably not as well as ega did but we will we will see
1: if you're ega and sabalenka i'm going to throw this question at you for every player moving forward is there something you're working on specifically this off season or to your point is it really just about rest and recuperation for each of them
0: I think it is about rest and recuperation, especially for those two, because I think it yeah. was they were these were two very intense seasons, and rather intensely played, and I think that as the the calendar continues to evolve as well with the two week tournaments, I think that was this was an especially exhausting season. I also think because of the fact that this was really the first COVID free season, you know, this was a regular year. Everyone played everything that they were supposed to play. There was no cancellations, no weirdness. So I think everyone's kind of getting into the groove and seeing what it actually means to be uh, an elite tennis player for 11 and a half months and also realizing maybe that's not all it's cracked up to be, but trying to figure out how to how to balance that.
1: Yeah, all right. I like to hear it. Well, with all of that said, then let's move on to – our I, because I agree for the record. I just – I think tactically, Sablanka, Svantec, they're working. at it. They know all the wrinkles. They, they really have, are both such complete players, even if it is different game styles. And, you know, again, I think for them, it's make it your mentally. You're where you need to be come January. I'm going to throw this at you. I'm ready to hand out my first A+. And it's not to one of our two remaining Slam champions that we have to discuss. No. My A+, my lone A+, in the top eight, it's going to go to Jessica Pagula. DK I'm giving her 2023 20, and a plus because I just can't imagine a better season for the 29 year old than the one we just saw unfold she earns 59 victories this year 17 more than she earned last season 59 and 18 overall by the way beats Sabalenka Rabakina and Goff at this tour finals before she ran into the buzz. buzzsaw you look at how she ended the season you know winning Montreal finals Tokyo wins sold finals tour finals Overall in the year for Jessica Pagula, again, 59-18, and she makes uh, six different finals this year. Excuse me if you include United Cup, uh, two different tour-level titles, the Seoul-Montreal titles, but obviously the 1,000-level title. And I will say some of this is clouded by how freaking good she looked throughout the course of the Tour Finals. I mean, you used this term earlier. It was just businesslike. She was just out there to dominate people. There was no wasting of energy. There was no wasting of strokes her ability to keep that ball low and flat. I thought her and Iga hit the two balls that penetrated the court more than even a Sabalenka or a Rabacana, uh, throughout the course of this event. And it's, again, the discipline she goes about doing in another top five returning season for her. She's also one of the seven players, top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Every event, big, you know, regardless of the scale of the event, felt like it had some sort of Jessica Pagula storyline. And again, she just doesn't lose bad matches pretty much ever throughout the course of a season. I it, it's Again, it's on the scale of, I never saw this coming from Jessica Pagulin to do it not just in 2022, but to have a second top five season. And to be so clearly a top five player, even though she never reached a slam final this year, and yet like so clearly, I think she had a better year than Rabakina. Like I just think metric to metric, Player to player. Yes, we're gonna made a slam final in Australia. Outside of that, I think Pagula was better just about everywhere else. Indian Wells, you know, again, I'll trade you Indian Wells for Montreal. Whatever you want to do. How can you not give the 29-year-old an A-plus? Like, a Yes, in her mind, slam title. That's what she's looking for at this point. But that's all that's left. Like coming out of 2023, that's all Jessica Pagula really has left to accomplish in her career. Win a slam title, the most elusive thing the sport has to offer. And I can't believe we're sa- – I still can't believe we're saying that even though it's been two years of it. So A-plus for me.
0: I can't – but feel like you're giving this A-plus in the hopes of getting some investor money for your racket magazine <laughs> competitor. was like – a little heavy handed. Um, Listen, I mean, to our point initially about, you know, defying expectations. I mean, it feels like, will we ever have expectations of Jessica Pagula? It feels like we're always at like... We a, have to now. We're, at, we're in the basement always to start the year and show. It's always like, wow, didn't see that coming. I she's agree. She's basically been doing it for the last three years in a row. I mean, but also, you know, this time last year, she went 0-6 at the 2022 WTA finals. And it felt like one of those moments where you're like, wow, this is a real make or break. Like we may never see... Jessica Pagula ever again in the top eight. Like, it just seemed like one of those, like, yes, she was tired, but she really didn't put up much resistance in any of those three losses and then got, you know, smacked in doubles. It was just a really brutal week for her. And, And I think it goes the way that she was able to turn around this year proves how she takes things in stride, doesn't get overly emotional about things, you know, in a way that's, you know, damaging or detrimental to her long term success. I can't give her an A+. plus. I mean, she didn't – not only did she not win a slam, she continued – the big question about Pagula remains, can she break that Grand Slam quarter? Could she make a slam semifinal? I think if she made a slam semifinal and did everything that she did, you know, had that – you know, got that monkey off her back, you would say, wow, A, A-plus season. But with that – all of that said, I think we do have to really separate Iga and Arena from the field and give out my first A-minus because I think, yes – but the way that she won Montreal, beating Ega, you know, shaking off Cotton Eye Joe, you know, <laughs> in that moment, really disappointed that that hasn't become more of a thing. I think she's relieved, but I'm disappointed. Um, and the way that she played at the WTA Finals, you know, again beating the players that she beat to make it all the way there, doesn't put up much of a fight in the final. Yes, Iga played great, but I think again, if she, you know, if she beat Iga, maybe that would be okay. That's yes, she didn't do great at the Slams, relatively speaking to a, a Sabalenka, but she still won one of the biggest tournaments of the year a a plus but i think it's we got to pump the brakes a little bit and 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 give it an a minus
1: you're right which is i know (laughs) yeah i I mean the thing is we're going to give out so many a's on this grade because like you look at Goff and von and you're like but they won slams so (laughs) i don't know how you don't give them an a like some scale of a i'm not saying like firm a but it's like Okay, but they won slams, so I don't know how you can go out of the season thinking it was anything It other feels than like figure win.
0: skating judging, like who's going to get your 6-0? Like yeah. only one person can get your 6-0, and then there's five eights, five nines, 5 7s. so it's, it's a I little mean, bit— I mean, the
1: scale I judge Iga and Sabalenka on is different than Jessica Pakula. And I guess the biggest compliment I can say and why I'd give her an A-plus coming out of this is no longer will that be the case. I think coming out of this year, you're right. It has to be judged on only the highest of scales. Did you beat the best players at the biggest event, whether that's quarterfinals or further at Masters or, you know, obviously quarter semis, finals of a major? I will say, 9-5, and Pagula against the top 10 this year. She beat everyone. She beat Iga twice. She beat Goff twice. She beat Sabalenka. She beat Rabakina. Now, a lot of those wins, again, came at the end of the season, and a lot of those wins did not come at slams, but wins that tunnel— Title in Montreal, really impressive fashion, beating Goff, Sviantec, etc., on her way to that final, even if that Samsonova match in the final was a little funky. I retract. You're right. A minus is the better answer. But I guess the biggest compliment again I can give her she's now gonna be judged on the hardest possible of scales because she has done everything else and she's Will done she? It for two I years.
0: still feel like next year, even if she like makes I mean I, I think if she does like an amazing Australian open makes like the final, no, then okay, maybe we'll finally. But, but I do think if there's she has just-
1: if she does this exact season in twenty twenty four, what are you giving her? <laughs>
0: I think, think be minus
1: No, see, I think then it would have to be a B plus because it's like I don't know. I just think this?
0: there's still something so unassuming yeah, about right. Jessica Pagula right. where it's just like, wow, like, and you were so injured <laughs> and you were playing those <laughs> ITFs and flying around the world and now here you are. Isn't that great? I still think there's something, you know. Th- her biggest strength is her lack of any true weakness. You know, there's nothing about yeah. her game where you're like, wow. he's
1: so well now.
0: No one watches Pagula for her forehand or her backhand. But I think the totality oh. of her game is really quite – I I personally, you know, I love flat hitting. I enjoy yeah. it. It's like a, there's a zippiness to it. It's not the heavy ball that a, a Sabalenka mm-hmm. or a, a Shiante can do. But I think that zippiness kind of helped on this kind of weird court where the bounces, the balls were dying. And so it wasn't – the balls weren't arcing up. When you were playing Pagula, they were kind of dying on the volley. Well, so it was so fascinating. A
1: the dichotomy of like the ball—you're exactly right about Pagula—and yet on this court, Iga's ball was flying through the court, and you were just like, and her, well, her level hand, of
0: topspin is just—it's yeah. another level.
1: Also, her backhand was also flat, and even better than Pagula's. And but again, the way Pagula just systematically moving rabakana side, 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 and again the Sabalenka match she had—Sabalenka pushed on the back foot. She's so diligent about attacking the corners, taking. Any inch you give her, shades of Djokovic, like, again, and how she goes about attacking her opponent, the well-rounded nature of it. Um, I'm talking purely game style, DK. Relax. That's for Um, issue number
0: one of of Cracked Racket magazine. Jessica Bagula, the next Djokovic? Question mark. Like one of those big artistic question marks. (laughs) You're
1: right. A minus is the final answer. We'll stick the A's for the big guns. But – I mean, how can you not give Coco Guff an A as we move on here? We can go quicker through these next ones because, again, I just think there is less to discuss. But she won a freaking major. Like, look at what she did post Wimbledon uh, after losing, obviously, a really disappointing first round match to Sonia Kennan. Wins Washington. Quarterfinal loss Montreal to the eventual champion Pagula, but she goes and wins Cincinnati, wins the U.S. Open, semifinal Beijing loss to Iga, and after the 0-6 performance at last year's tour finals, makes the semifinals this year where she loses Iga, Pagula respectively, but wins over Vondrusova, Jaburi, even though she was not playing her best tennis, 51-6. and Uh, 51 and 16, excuse me. Overall, she's one of two players, her and Ega, to rank top 15 in both hold and break percentage. It has to be an A, DK. For someone who, again, turned 19 years old in March, doesn't turn 20 till next March.
0: I can't give Coco Gauff an A. I have to give her an A+. I'm sorry. I just feel like, I mean, where we were, and we all remember where we were at Wimbledon when she lost to Sophia Kenan, the where we were when we were watching on ESPN, Renee Stubbs trying to demonstrate like the funkiness of the Coco Golf extreme Western forehand grip and how it just wasn't sustainable. And she was really going to have to reinvent herself and revamp her game. And now, I mean, is it fair to say she's kind of set for life? Like, you know, she could never win another slam and she will always be. Coco Gauff, teenage Grand Slam US Open champion, you know, no, top five player in the world, world number one in doubles. I mean, she has achieved very close to a Hall of Fame career, and she's not even 20 years old. And what's more impressive to me, even more so than the way that she conducted herself through the Cincy US Open sprint, and it was a sprint, the way that she beat everyone that everyone thought that she could not beat, she beat them, and then comes to the WTA finals in conditions that We've seen Coco golf really, you know, disappear. And I'll never forget the uh, Indian Wells 2021 against Palo It was a windy night and Coco couldn't even get the ball on the court. I mean, it was just, it was the way that her game was set up. It was like, oh God, any kind of extreme weather condition, you're toast. And she still played really, really great in Cancun. So she was able to back it up. She's got this new infusion of confidence, energy, a new verve to her game, you know, she's still one of the best personalities, has been one of the best personalities, one of the greatest, you know, one of the best players to talk to. Just a thoughtful, intuitive, you know, empathetic, just a really great person. And I always believed her to be a great person. I didn't know if she was ever going to be a great tennis player. And she's proved that she could be both. You know, and let's applaud that. I mean, I think, again, talk about expectations. I don't think coming into the season, certainly after Wimbledon, we ever thought we would be talking about Coco Gop as a Grand Slam champion. And here she is. You know and, and now everything she does here on out I think is just gravy so I, I would uh I'm very I'm looking forward to seeing how she backs it up because I do think she's incredibly competitive at the same time and you know is motivated by what she's motivated by and I think that she'll continue to play and give her best but you know what a what a dream come true for someone who by not even the age of 20 to have done the thing that we thought you do we didn't think you could do and now believe you could do even more so yeah that's for her it's got to be an A plus because it's just this was an out of nowhere run.
1: It's a passionate case. I There's not many holes to poke in it. I mean, again, the difference between why she would get an A-plus versus others earlier is, again, what were your expectations coming in? And I will say right off the bat, when she goes and wins that title in Auckland and makes the round of 16 in Australia, you could just tell there was, again, the physicality had even taken it to another level. The, there was just a newfound strength, um, which obviously you get with the Turning older, and you know, again, her comfort level moving forward, how decisive she was putting that ball away at the net. I do think there's a little more zip on the forehand, even if the technique remains unchanged. Again, unless you have Iga or Pagula's backhand, you're not beating off in a backhand cross court exchange. There's only one hole remaining, and you better have an elite serve or some sort of elite weapon if you're gonna try and exploit that Coco Golf forehand, because short of it being elite, you're just not going to be able to do it anymore. She's too strong, she's too quick in beating you to the spot. Now again, that will be continue to be a point of emphasis for her, certainly this offseason, and that it does feel like there's still something she can continue to improve on so decisively uh continues to perhaps speak to there's more upside remaining in terms of where Coco Gauff can go. And I still do think Coco Gauff, who, by the way, tied with Pegula with those nine top 10 wins, I do think she can continue to get better. I do think, again, as the forehand technique, she becomes a little bit stronger. It's just going to be more difficult to exploit barring elite, elite weaponry the way really only Iga and Sabalenka have. I mean, again, you you mentioned it with the doubles as well. World number one there. Um, got the biggest monkey off the back, now never has to worry about being asked, will you win a slam title in your career? Because she has already done so. Even beats Ega in Cincinnati, which again was just something she had not done. Ega had dominated her so thoroughly. And yes, Ega got her twice pretty thoroughly to end the year as well. I still do think foundationally, that is the biggest roadblock she will have to, to climb is that... And I say this with all due respect, Iga's just the like the Coco to the extreme, to the nth power, is Iga. And that's like always going to be there for her. That's always going to be who she's chasing after. And isn't that the thing you want most for someone in their young career to see where the standard is and to have someone to meet? And I just think that rivalry, if it doesn't remain so one-sided, it could very well define the next decade.
0: Yeah, I think. That that win in Cincinnati, not almost singularly, but really unlocked something in Coco. That that belief that she can compete yeah. with the best players in the world. And again, I mean, granted, I let's not get crazy. I did not think in the first six months of the season there was anything resembling what we ended up seeing at the end of the year. I think she, if anything, she was trending down. It felt like we were just, we were working our way from a top five player, top eight player into, you know, a dependable top 20, top 25 player, you know, someone who challenged, but didn't really have offensive weaponry to really compete with your Sabalenka's and your Svantek. So the fact that she defied every, you know, knock against her, oh, well, you can't beat this player and you can't go deep and your forehand's not good enough. And you, you know, you're mentally weak. You know, there are all these, these criticisms that were thrown against her and this idea, again, that she was going to really need to change her game all 360 degrees proved that, no, just an, an infusion of confidence, a new voice, some new voices on her team, a slightly more aggressive approach, a, a determination to be as, you know, to really rely on her athleticism and her defense. And just was a wall in that U.S. Open final against Sabalinka did not allow her to get anything past her and really got the crowd involved. You know, was able to be a showman, you know, to quote uh, Erica Jane from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, to read I'm a showman. I'm a showman. That's what I do. So I think that's um, that's, yeah, it's one of the an unforgettable season. And I think when we talk about player of the year, editorially speaking, there is certainly an argument for Coco Golf as the player of the year. Even if objectively, statistically, numerically, Igish Contact probably had the best season. I think the player of the year, if we're taking it on a more, our more holistic perspective, I do think that there's something to be said about when people look back on 2023, they will remember the 2023 U.S. Open.
1: Oh, we will have that debate when it's award show time, DK. Don't get me too excited already. Let's move on to our next player for now. It's our other slam winner.
0: (laughs) We're only like four people in.
1: No, don't worry. This way we're going fast, I promise. Marketa Vondrosova. outside the top 100 at the end of last season. Now she's a slam champion. Now she's inside the top 10. By the way, it wasn't just at the Slams where she succeeded. You look for Vondrosova overall, 40-17 and on the year. U.S. Open quarterfinals, Cincy quarterfinals, Indian Wells round of 16. The the best part is the front half of her year next year. There's a lot of ground to be made up for someone who, by the way, is a former French Open finalist on top of now the Wimbledon title to add to it as well. She sneak out an 8-plus in your mind, DK? Where is she? She's the reason I destroyed you in our preseason drafts.
0: I mean, it's in a way, it's kind of similar to to Coco in the sense that, like, no one was expecting anything out of her. She wins a slam and, you know, plays good to great following that slam run. You know, it obviously does great at the U.S. Open, making the quarterfinals and qualifies for the year-end championships, WTA finals. I mean – it's it's not as epic as what Coco did to win Cincy in the US Open. And obviously those two tournaments combined, you know, compared to just what Von Trusova did at Wimbledon didn't have the toughest draw compared to what um I mean, coming I mean, obviously Coco had Ostapenko, Mukova, and Sabalenka in the final, and von Trusova had what was it, Pagula, Svitolina, and then Jibora in the final. It's hard to say it's an A plus. I mean Relative to my own logic, it feels like it should be an A plus. I think I can give her an A minus to an A. It just it was, it was so strange still, and I feel like it's going to take a while to see how she's able to back that up. But at the same time, we've also seen her be, as you said, a French Open finalist, a Olympic runner up. I mean, elite results are not beyond her grasp. But certainly, consistency doesn't appear to be beyond her grasp based on how she conducted herself over the last six months post Wimbledon. I would say A minus to an A.
1: I mean, I don't know how you don't give an A. She's a slam champion this year. Maybe the most unexpected I mean, not the most, maybe. Like certainly
0: I just feel like we've been giving out too many A's and I'm bored. <laughs> I mean, especially it feels like relative to like the field that we're in. I mean, like, you know, how do how what, what would we how would we grade the two thousand and three season of like Kim Clijsters and Justine Enna and then we'll be giving them A A minuses and B pluses? I mean it's just
1: No, I mean she was outside the top 100 less than a year ago. She's inside the top 10 with room to grow her ranking. Has to be an A for me. How well her game fits moving forward again. How complete her game is. The fact that she, her plan A is not going to be as good maybe as some of the opponents. But no one gets to plan B, C, D, E better. She is a counter for everything you want to do. Watching her drop shot lob people to death. It's just there's... Isn't there some nostalgia in it? You're like, oh, it brings me back to my childhood of like this happens at every 12s and 14s event until people start to get better than that. And then she can still do it. Speaks to the touch. Comfortable moving forward. Good athlete. I guess here's my question to you. Final one for Van Drussevel. Will 2023 be the best career season of her career?
0: I mean, I think it's also, it's the same problem with Mukova. It's, if she could stay healthy, and as we saw with Mukova, she was not able to stay healthy throughout the whole season, got injured, was not not able to play the WTA finals, and and Drisco, unfortunately, has been victim to the same problem. Historically, to your point, she was not in the top 100 this time last year. And I think the I think the reason why I give her a lower grade is I feel like her, her year was better than Pagula's, but not as good as Sabalenka, Svantek, or Goff. So I feel like I want to create some distance, but obviously, yes. As a slam champion, I don't know. Better if her, than so.
1: she won the slam at Wimbledon. I don't know if she had a better year than Drusseve, Uh than Pagula. I don't know if I agree with that.
0: No, I mean you win Wimbledon. It's you have a better. Remember. It's a better. I year. mean After that's Pagula, what Pagula stuff. would trade. If you ask Pagula, she would trade her Montreal title for Wimbledon. I think.
1: <laughs> but who was more consistent throughout the course of the year? Unequivocally, Pagula. There's a reason Pagula is ending higher in the rank. No, but that's
0: also part of why I don't want to give her a flat A because I want to. I want to okay. note that there you know was what? something.
1: You know what? That's a great point by you. That's you're right. That's exactly isn't, why you isn't wouldn't. Isn't it give her always? Her <laughs>
0: fun. No, that was rare.
1: That would be the argument against it. Um, but. <sighs> I just feel bad giving golf an A plus and her not, you know, fine. A minus, we can move I mean, that's on. Also, for this that is also year. some,
0: like, sure, like some jingoism, like American yeah. centrism, mm-hmm. the idea that, like, wow, her winning oh, slam American American is so much more. Like, oh, American
1: centrism. Oh, okay. American centric. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I was yeah. like, I was like, I was like, where is he going with this? Because like, she's
0: this not, not like a... this, because obviously, you know, Vondrus is Czech and doesn't have that same, like, North American, there was that same North yeah. American attention on Vondrus about the way that there was. But uh, there was a lot of mini The way there attention. has been on golf.
1: A lot of mini break attention on her all year long, justifiably so. Again, an analytics darling, Marketa Vandrosova, ending the year with her first slam. What's your Robachna
0: grade? I might have to give her like a stone cold B.
1: Yeah. What started in the serious A range of like, okay, you've backed up everything from Wimbledon, first third of the season, Indian Wells, Australian Open final, all these different things. You know, again, she still made Wimbledon quarters. Like, she still had a bunch of fun semifinal runs in Beijing, in Montreal. She's another one you look at, like, things. missed
0: opportunities at Wimbledon. Yeah. I mean, that's someone who I assumed she was going to beat Burr. And like, I thought I was looking, I'm not looking forward to, it, but I was assuming we were going to get a Sabalinka-Rabachina semifinal, just based on the way that Rabachina had played for the first six months of the season. But really, since. You know, you almost want to say since she got sick at the French, when she seemed like she was playing really great there, wasn't able to play through Paris, and then doesn't defend her Wimbledon title. And I feel like since then, the only thing we've really heard from Rubakina is complaints. <laughs> like I feel like she's only ever in the news when she's complaining about something. It's not because it, it hasn't really been because of her tennis or how how well that she's been playing. Forty-seven and
1: seventeen overall career high win percentage, career high in wins, seventy-nine percent hold percentage. That was fourth overall. Uh, again, she did win a title in Rome. She did win a title at Indian Wells. She did make an Australian Open Miami finals as well. There were moments when her power tennis were pretty clearly uh, near or at the best in the world, and again, it was a little spotty at times. Like it was for so many, for someone who has so many big results on her resume, it's, it is remarkable how inconsistent portions of her season felt, and like. I mean, there really aren't that many bad losses. Like, I'll throw out the Cincy loss to Paolini. Sarivas, Tormo Roland Garros, not great. You know, again, like, yeah, there are a few in there, but she didn't have any strikingly like, you lost first round at this slam or whatever it may be. Well, she, didn't, yet, she didn't
0: play the match against Sarivas, yeah. Tormor, Roland She pulled out.
1: This is true. Um, <laughs> and yet, you're right. Like, I, I mean, she was so good through the first third that I would venture to say B plus, but it's no higher than a B plus. It's got to be B to B plus.
0: Yeah, I mean, the losses to Samsonova started to pile up. You know, yeah. not you know, not being able to outgut gut after Kristea was wobbly in the second set of that U.S. Open match. You know, you would have expected, I think a Rabak, I think a Sabalenka or a Shondt would win those matches, and I think that's becoming a bit of a. It's why it's, it's why it's a shame we can't give Sam, Samsonova a grade this year. She should play so well against Elena Rybakina. If it's, if it's only against, if the curve is, if the rubric is only grading against a match against this Rybakina, I think Sam is an A plus. But I think for Rybakina, yeah, I mean she's someone conversely to a Pagula. I think we came in with pretty high expectations. She set a really high bar with the Australian Open. I mean, similarly to the way I've judged Sitsipasa's season. I mean, I don't think one slam final up against a body of work that hasn't been as stellar I think Robocina's probably had a better season than Sitsipas winning you know a WTA 1000 you know, I think that's there's something to be said there but I don't think um I think there's a lot there's a lot to be made up for and I I'm a little little concerned because I don't know how Rebecca gets I mean granted when she won Wimbledon in 2022 she was very fetchy and felt like she wasn't getting what she deserved as a Grand Slam champion. And so, you know, maybe this just comes to the territory. Maybe it's not a harbinger of of bad results. But I think uh, she's certainly coming in with a very high floor, you know, of results. And certainly we're going to ex- expect a lot from her in 2024. And I hope she's able to deliver it because I think that she's someone who adds quite a bit of color to this WTA tapestry. Yeah.
1: All well said. All right, we talked a lot about these two players throughout the course of the year. So truly rapid fire. Need a grade and a sentence why. Ons I hope
0: they. Um. I mean, the way based on how she played the Wimbledon final, I'm inclined to give her like a C minus because I feel like that's such an unforgivable loss. You know, I mean, maybe we can round it up because she didn't totally disappear after Wimbledon. I maybe I'll round it up to a B minus, but you know, she was injured at the start of the season, didn't play great, really didn't play, you know, wasn't was just rounding into former Roland Garros, plays a really bad match against Haddad Maya at Wimbledon at the French Open, does what she does at Wimbledon, was sick at the US Open, still manages to qualify for the for the finals based on making the Wimbledon final in large part, but, you know, wasn't really a factor there either. So I guess a B minus.
1: Yeah, that feels about right. Sakari?
0: She's kind of similar to Bagul in the sense I feel like you've come in with low expectations, and she still managed to find herself at the WTA finals after everything. like After what was being considered to be a terrible year, she still managed to find herself at the finals. So I probably would give her a, a B- as well.
1: I agree for both Jabir and Sakari, same reasoning. It's literally, they grinded their way into the top eight. Sakari, obviously, via the withdrawal, but Sakari was so much better over the last six weeks that Jabir, again... Found a little bit of health, a little bit of form down the season's home stretch to reset things and steady the ship heading into 2024. I think for both those players, they grind out top ten spots that in the year. How do you consider that anything other than a win? Considering I don't think we saw either's best tennis throughout the course of the season.
0: No. Those
1: those are your eight. That's our thoughts on the field now. There Are still some things to discuss from the event, DK. And this anything is anything weird
0: happened at the WTA finals? Well, I don't this remember. is where I
1: just want to turn the floor over to you. Weather, no. surface, rushness, crowd, all of it. The floor is yours, my friend.
0: Oh boy, where to begin? I mean, this has been a problem with the WTA since the pandemic, since they were no longer able to host um, their WTA finals in China first, you know, because of the pandemic, then ostensibly because of the Peng Shui controversy. Maybe yes, maybe no. And then also with the organizers of that tournament, whether there's even a home for women's tennis in Shenzhen based on the way that they have come back to most of the other Chinese cities. So maybe there's something particularly happening in Shenzhen that's precluding a return to the WTA finals there. Um, The fact that we don't know where the finals is going to be until – the U.S. Open, the fact that there was, you know, it seemed pretty set that it was going to be in Saudi Arabia. And then under the wire, or right at the last minute, it, it, there's rumors of Ostra, there's rumors of Cancun. And finally, they settle in on Mexico. And I think there was a lot of optimism based on how well the WK Finals in Guadalajara panned out. We felt like, OK, this is that tournament was great. Everybody loved it. This was it's being organized by the same people. It's going to be a great tournament. Um, rumors I heard, um, quite unsubstantiated rumors, I might add, that um there was initially going to be an indoor venue for the WTA finals in Cancun, only to discover that the roof did not meet the uh, height specifications that made them unable to host the tournament there. There were myriad issues in building the outdoor uh, center court in a way that made you know made for a lot of jokes that the tournament that the court was not ready that the players themselves were going to have to help build it that they weren't able mm-hmm. to make it onto the practice court that they'd be playing the match on until the day before their first match and so many complaints from Sabalenka from Van Drusova. plenty of players were not happy with the situation you know there was a lot of reporting done by Matt Futterman at the at the Athletic concerning the the sort of global dissatisfaction from WTA players with WTA upper management, sending an open letter to, or not an open letter, because it became sort of an open letter because everyone was reporting on it, but a letter to Steve Simon airing some of their grievances with how the, the the tournaments and rather how the tour is structured and things that can be done to, to fix that. The PTPA in their infinite wisdom got involved and try to act as advocates uh, for, for the women's tennis players, where they'd mostly been, they were kind of, They were largely formed as an ATP organization and tried to do what they could to assist the ATP players, and I guess getting more prize money that seemed to be the big um, raison d'être from the PTPA. now they seem to move over to the WTA and trying to affect some kind of change in terms of how the tournament, how the tour is structured. You know, wanting to. uh, There was rumors, or rather, uh, an idea, a suggestion floated that the top hundred all receive a salary of five hundred thousand dollars a year. Or yeah, would love to see where that money comes from, or fifty thousand it was it was There's a some ridiculous amount of money magazine. yeah, I, <laughs> some racket magazine money. I don't know where they're they're gonna they're gonna have to be a new sponsor of the WTA maybe, maybe they'll buy the WTA since <laughs> uh, that was on the list of uh, of things to buy. but um yeah, it was a very wacky, unsettling end to what had been a pretty great year for the Women's Tennis uh, Association overall. Some really great results, some new stars, new Grand Slam champions, a consistent number one, a battle for the number one ranking. Narratively speaking, there was everything that we could have asked for from um, a women's tennis season just for for it to end with such a clunker of a WTA finals, where everyone seemed to be pretty unhappy except for the finalists. You know, I mean, even you know Iga Shvanta coming in unhappy with the dress code, wearing being defiantly wearing red to an all white photo shoot, and still managing to ground herself and play some really great tennis. Jessica Jessica Pagula as well. You know, it, a, a real test of mental fortitude was that week in Cancun, and we saw from whether it was Sabalenka. Or von Drusenberg or Rabakin, a lot of just discontent and and dissatisfaction with the way the tours run, and a, a big question mark going forward because obviously the WTA has formed this new WTA Ventures with CBC. You know how that's going to fix and change things, how that's going to be a new cash infusion, and what what is to be done uh, with the future the future of the WTA. It seems somewhat up in the air, but I'm that's going to be intriguing to see how that how the things develop with you know the the circuit structure continuing to evolve in 2024 and how CEO Steve Simon addresses a lot of the concerns and, or you know, punts them over to the WTA board and how they vote on those, um, those gripes and grievances. But it was, um, yeah, a, a bummer of a way to end the year. And you would hope that we find out where the 2024 WTA finals will be sooner than September. And I think that will hopefully lay the groundwork for a more stable, successful uh, year-end finale to a tour that certainly deserves it.
1: Yeah, I I agree with everything and you said. <laughs> no, it's it's certainly worth noting. Again, there's a hurricane like the week before, didn't help with anything, of course. Um, and a tennis tournament becomes an afterthought given the devastation of that sort of event. But again, you're right. Oh, we, yeah, we didn't
0: it, even talk about the weather, the the myriad weather delays, no, the uh, the numerous of videos of umbrellas getting turned inside out, the in, the you know the fact that the tor- the tournament itself was delayed by a day because of the 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 many rain delays. I mean, I, I know that the players were. Ultimately went with Cancun because they were happy with the accommodations in terms of the hotel. I know there was, you know, dissatisfaction with the idea that Osterwa, the other candidate, probably wouldn't have had been able to offer the same prize money. Plus, there was some question of whether Belarusians and Russians, Marina Sablanga, would be able to even enter the country given the ongoing conflict and, and war and invasion of Russia into Ukraine and, and and Belarus, Belarus's complicity in that. And so it's World issues and obviously the the controversy with Saudi Arabia, the weather, you know, the, <laughs> all that goes with a sports event happening, an international yeah. sporting event happening in Saudi Arabia, you know, coming under debate and who's for that, who's against it, whether Saudi Arabia may still be a, con- a contender. The ATP is certainly making inroads in Saudi Arabia. You know, you have your own Jabor. Um, Making you know her her case for it, and other players maybe not as happy with it, or certainly not as um, rah rah. And then given the the now you know, continuing conflict with you know the escalating conflict with Israel and Gaza, maybe perhaps for the best that there wasn't a tournament you know happening in Saudi Arabia at, at practically the same time. So maybe they they dodged you know a, a potential misfire there. But yeah, it's it, it's a there's so much there's so much. Yeah. There's a whole podcast that could that, that could be devoted to it.
1: Sounds like it should be an investigative piece by Racket Magazine. Sounds like something we can focus on come the month. Gotta take Gary of Nathan off pause. Late November, <laughs> early December. But no, I appreciate you catching everyone up, DK, because, yeah, again, it was a heck of a WTA finals through all sorts of things and. Certainly appreciate you coming back a few weeks later to discuss it all. There's no one I would rather talk through all of these things with. I know you are a busy man right now, as is the team at Tennis.com. Talk me through plugs. What can we expect from you over the next few weeks and as we transition in the off season,
0: I mean, I hope everybody read my interview with uh, Florian Zitzelberger, the new uh, fit, uh, performance coach, I should clarify. I think I said fitness training. I was like, no, I'm a performance coach, of Naomi Osaka and assisting Naomi through her comeback from maternity leave. Had a lot of interesting things to say about – what Naomi needs to do to come back, the importance of uh, physical fitness and injury prevention to being an elite tennis player has obviously worked with a lot of great players in addition to Naomi. Um, perhaps some interview with the uh, Billie Jean King Cup captain uh, of uh, Team Canada, Victorious Team Canada coming down the pike, Heidi El Tabak. Um, some some, fe- some leftover features perhaps from earlier in the season that may come out in December, but uh, I think I'll be back between now and then to help plug those as they become more fully formed and fleshed out. Obviously, ATP finals coverage. We still got tennis going on, ladies and gentlemen, still happening. So, <laughs> for another so, couple of days, anyway.
1: Well, we look forward to reading it all. And as always, you can find links s on X. A thank you to him. A shout out, as always, as well, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the what sort of editing job he does day in and day out.
0: Oh, he does a of an editing job editing out all of those coughs and sneezes.
1: Yeah, you don't even know what happened, folks. But <laughs> let me tell you, there was some hacking. There were some things that go on as I'm still playing injured, nevertheless, for DK always a pleasure to hop on the show and with that said four wouldn't have done it the, for you
0: yeah, exactly <laughs>
1: four you know, I think you have in the I remember you there's <laughs> a flu game there's a flu yes. game we discussed Yeah, <laughs> so for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer Daniel Westoff our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin DK what do we tell our listeners
0: and that's the break
1: and we will see you all later today thanks everyone
0: let's be done